Welcome to the Boneyard with Steve Robertson. As always, I am your good friend and host, Steve Robertson, here on the Monday edition of The Yard. Hope you had a great weekend. A lot to talk about. Good weekend on the diamond for Mississippi State. Also, a pretty yeah, pretty eventful weekend for Mississippi State softball, too. And uh, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about that. And maybe we should. But, uh, you know, listen, the season's over for Coach Sam Ricketts and uh, Tyler Bratton and Josh Johnson and, and the, uh, the crew there with softball. A great end-of-the-year run. Make it interesting in the SEC tournament. Land in a regional out in Stillwell, pardon me, Stillwater, Oklahoma. Win a couple of games out there. Set a program record. And listen, we've got some building blocks now with which to kind of move forward on. And, you know, a month ago, I think all of us were thinking, you know what, man, this thing is going to go bad on us. We were so excited last year. We got to such a great start, and then COVID quarantine came along, and we canceled all the college sports, and, you know, hopes were high this year because most of the team was coming back, and, you know, we got off to a decent start in non-conference, but then uh, we got into conference play, and it was kind of a similar refrain, right? I mean, we just weren't competitive. But along the way, we figured some things out. That says a lot about your coaching staff, that they could keep those young ladies engaged, had to figure some things out, figure some roles out for certain players. They did that. They were a very difficult out down the stretch. And so my hat is off to all of the ladies and gentlemen involved in Mississippi State softball. Excited to see what is to come. When we made the change from Van Sudeman to Samantha Ricketts, a lot of people wondered, okay, well, what's this mean? You know, why are we hiring a first-time coach? And there were a lot of people – you know, connected with the search and said, you know what, Steve, there are a lot of people out here in softball circles that say, you know, Samantha Ricketts is going to be a star as a major softball coach. And so since we already had her in-house, it made sense for us to hire her and promote from within. I know some people kind of questioned the decision, but many of you are not invested in Mississippi State softball, but perhaps you will be in the years to come. And I think, again, Samantha Ricketts and her staff did a wonderful job turning this thing around, landing in a regional, and then going out there and playing with some real moxie and playing hard. Sad that it came to an end. You know, we'd love to be able to, uh, you know, to have a regional win out there. We've never had one in our history, but I do believe it's coming. I really do. And I, I hope that you share that same optimism. We got a lot of baseball stuff to talk about, and we're going to get to that after the uh, the first segment of the show. But you know, one of the things that I would like to point out to you guys, I was probably a little more bullish about Mississippi State than a lot of other people. State was picked second in the West. We end up second in the West. We have an opportunity, of course, to win the Southeastern Conference Championship. And you know what? If we'd swept Missouri, we'd have had at least a share of it. We didn't get the help from Florida we'd hoped with Arkansas. But if you had been told beginning of the year, okay, guys, listen, guys and gals, we're going to win 40 games, we're going to go 20 and 10 in the SEC, and you're going to be the number three seed heading to the SEC tournament. I think most people would have said, you know what, I'll, I'll take that right now today. I'll go ahead and sign off on that today. I'll still probably look back at this year and lament the fact that we, we didn't win the SEC championship because I believe we had a team capable of doing it, despite all of our warts, despite the fact that it's taken us a long time to kind of figure out Sunday pitching, despite the fact that it's taken us a while to find a way to get production out of the bottom third of the order and really add some length to the lineup. 
But we've done that now here very late in the season, and I think maybe perhaps that bodes well for us in the postseason. But despite all of those deficiencies, we had a real chance. I mean, you say, well, Steve, you know, Arkansas is this, guys. We finished two games behind them. Two. Two games. You know what? If we take one game against Arkansas, we share the SEC championship with them. That's how close it was. We win one against them. And we're a different team than we were when we played Arkansas. Yeah, many of our young people, many of our, you know, our rising stars had never played a big weekend at Duty Noble Field before that weekend. And that's a little bit intimidating. We had a big crowd there. We knew what was at stake. And we blew it. And Arkansas is a veteran team, and they came in here and played like a veteran team. I still believe we gave that Sunday game away. You know, we catch a pop-up there, it's probably a different ball game. You remember that play, right? Well, how about that Sunday game at South Carolina here just a couple weeks ago? You know, we take a one-run lead to the ninth. You know, maybe if we throw Landon Sims, maybe it's a different conversation today. I remember a ball game in Nashville on Sunday where we get a lead and we don't capitalize on that and we don't score the final seven innings of a ball game. They bring in Maldonado and kind of shut us down. And, again, we didn't play exceptionally well defensively, and we kind of gave that game away. I think everybody felt like, you know what, Steve, we, we should have won that and won the series. I go back to a Sunday in Baton Rouge. Where we were still trying to figure out what we want to do with Sunday pitching. And Eric Santola went out there and didn't have a good outing. Next thing you know, we're in a ball game. We probably should be well ahead. We, we, we spotted them a couple runs to start the game. We battle back and tie it, and then Jackson Fristo gives up a home run in, in relief there. And I thought Jackson actually pitched pretty well, probably solidified himself as a Sunday guy, even though that's been a bit of a roller coaster. But when you look around now and you begin to think, you know what? Yeah, if we'd have won that one, if we'd have won this one, and, and there, you can have those conversations every year. You can. But we had a team capable of winning the SEC. And what's interesting about this team is there are a lot of pieces that will be coming back. There will be some important pieces moving on, and we fully expect that, you know, with the draft. You know, obviously Tanner Allen has played himself into a much better position, could potentially be the SEC player of the year. I mean, I think Greg Campbell of Mississippi State uh, Sports Information has done a good job saying, hey, let's go ahead and start that conversation. Start talking about Tanner Allen because, listen, he's doing it against everybody. It doesn't matter who you trot out there. It doesn't matter the circumstances. It doesn't matter if it's a tight ball game or we're behind or whatever. He's up there competing every pitch. But, you know, let's take a quick look back at what's changed since the Arkansas series. Well, number one, we got a different first baseman. You know, Josh Hatcher was at first then. And, listen, I, I think Josh is a wonderful person. He hadn't played up the potential this year. I don't have negative things to say about Josh other than the fact that, you know, what, uh, you know, he didn't capitalize on what he did last year. I thought last year he's probably playing the best baseball of his career and he showed up this year. Maybe it's draftitis. I don't know. But he's not even playing now except as a defensive replacement. we got a different first baseman. And because of the fact that we've moved Luke Hancock from the DH spot to first base, it's allowed us to get another bat in the lineup. What that's also allowed us to do is Cameron James is a guy that uh, we've moved around a little bit, and I'm a Cam James fan. Now, all of a sudden, we got Cam working DH. We got Tanner Leggett at third, who is a better defensive player. He's also a senior. This is a guy that hadn't played a whole lot at Mississippi State, but this is a guy that's played a lot of baseball. It's a guy, too, that kind of understands his role on the team. You know, we don't need Tanner Leggett to go out there and hit home runs for us. He's hit one. He took a bunch of home run swings, too, at times, and uh, probably needs to play a little more within himself. But um, 
you know, I like the dynamic that he brings to the lineup. And one of the things, too, you guys know that my oldest son played college baseball, and he and I were talking a little bit about, you know, the left side of the infield. And he was a middle infielder himself. And he said, you know, he goes, the thing about it is, is when you can pair up guys on the left and the right side that have a real trust factor with each other, everybody plays better because you can play looser. When you're playing short – and all of a sudden, the third baseman maybe flashes in front and takes a ball that you could have had, and it should be an easy play, and they don't make the play. Automatically, as a shortstop, you begin to think, i got to make every play on this side. So you play a little bit tighter. You're a little more anxious. The game speeds you up a little bit. It's the same way on, over on the right side. You know, when you've got guys that kind of have some rapport and some chemistry, things work a little bit better. And so I think inserting Tanner Leggett into the lineup, I think, helps – Lane Forsyth, and I was talking to a good friend earlier today and says, you know what, you should save all these criticisms of Lane Forsyth, and when he is uh, you know, one of the best defensive shortstops in America here in a couple of years, you can bring him back up and make everybody feel a little silly. I think Lane Forsyth's going to be a dude for us. Does he take too many called third strikes? He absolutely does, but you know what, he's a freshman. It's been kind of pushed into a role that he really wasn't expected to be in this year. We didn't have an everyday left fielder, and it appears maybe we found one in Kellum Clark. I think Brad Cummins will still take some hacks against left-handers. But we've become a different team. You don't think we would stand a better chance against Arkansas if we don't boot the ball around on the left side? You don't think that we don't stand a better chance against Arkansas if we don't have a guy hitting about a buck 90, hitting fifth or sixth in the order? You don't think we'd have a better opportunity to beat Arkansas if we had a guy like Kellum Clark in the order now that he's healthy. And so we won't see Arkansas unless we make the uh, SEC tournament final or we see him in Omaha. But I'd like to try Arkansas on for size again. Maybe I'm alone. I, I read a lot of these comments sometimes, and, and one of the things that I hope that we can kind of breed out of the fan base, so ladies, please listen to me, Okay we got to breed out all this insecurity and this negativity and, and these people that always expect State to find a way to blow it. We need to breed that out of the fan base, one way or another, because we're a great baseball program. we got a great team. We hadn't always played great. We hadn't always played up to our full potential. But I'm not scared of Arkansas because I think that we have improved, and I think that we're a team that's capable of beating Arkansas. And I also think that our guys probably have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder when it comes to Arkansas. Now, again, Arkansas is a team that's led by a great coach and Dave Van Horn. they got a lot of veteran guys. And you know what? They have not lost a series this year. But you know what? They only swept one team, and that was us. You know, we swept a few teams. We swept A&M. A&M took a game from Arkansas. We swept Auburn. They took a game from Arkansas. We swept Alabama. They took a game from Arkansas. Matter of fact, the first SEC game of the year, I think they beat them, what, 14, 16, 2, something like that. And so Arkansas can be beat. And so in order for us to get there, I think we have to first acknowledge the fact that we are a better team. And the second thing we have to acknowledge is that Arkansas is not the 1961 Yankees. We're not facing murderers row. And if we do happen to see them in that big park at TD Ameritrade, and I, and I read people sometimes too, it's, I don't understand. You know, they, uh, they hit the ball well at Globe Life Field. It's a little bit different deal going to Omaha, and the wind usually blows in in the summertime in Omaha. 
You know, so I think Christian McLeod will probably learn from the experience before. But I think when he does make a mistake and perhaps elevates a fastball, I think the ballpark will hold it. I also think early in the year that Christian McLeod wanted to be Ethan Small. He wanted to be that guy that elevated that fastball. The difference is he just doesn't have a spin rate and doesn't have that same velo that Ethan did. That's what made Ethan a first-rounder. And so I think now Christian has kind of learned, okay, this is what I can do to be successful as an SEC pitcher. And I think he would love the opportunity to play Arkansas again. And I hope we get the chance. And I don't care if it's in Hoover. That doesn't really mean much to me. But I'd love to be able to play them at Omaha. I absolutely would love to play them in Omaha. I just well, I want to avoid them. I, I, let's stop being scared. We're Mississippi State. We're not Southern Miss, and thank God we're not Ole Miss. We're Mississippi State. And it's just a matter of time before we win a national championship. Is it happening this year? I don't know. Is this the crew? I don't know. But I know this. I know that Tanner Allen and Rowdy Jordan and Landon Sims aren't scared of Arkansas. I know those guys are chomping at the bit to get another chance to compete against those guys. As Tanner Allen said that Sunday after we got swept at Arkansas, excuse me, by Arkansas, he goes, you know what, man? He goes, back in 18, we swept those guys, and you look up at the end of the year, and they're playing for a national championship, and they should have won it. Probably the most lasting image of Arkansas baseball is a negative one, and it's Carson Shaddy calling off a right fielder to catch a pop-up in the bullpen, and he drops it. Oregon State comes back, wins the ball game, forces a game three. They win a national championship. I know that is something that has been driving Arkansas ever since. You may also remember in 2019 that Arkansas swept us. Pretty rude about it, too. They beat us up pretty good. You know, we had that Friday night game in the bag, and we blew it. Somehow we kind of lost our release point, and we lost our rhythm with an umpire. Next thing you know... You know, we get a walk here and an error there, and they come back and win the Friday game, and they sweep us. Then you get to Omaha, and you look up, and the first team eliminated at College World Series is Arkansas. We didn't play as well as we wanted to either. At least we won a game. But I want to win the game. I don't just want to go to Omaha and win a game. It's something John Cohen said that has always stuck with me. When John was hired – from the University of Kentucky and introduced as the new head baseball coach at Mississippi State. He said something that, you know, we probably should have put it on a T-shirt somewhere so we could all wear it around because I think we all share this mentality. He's like, you know what, we're going to get to Omaha, but we've been to Omaha. Just getting to Omaha is no longer enough for Mississippi State. That's how I feel. That's how you feel, and I believe that's how your players feel. I interviewed Chris Lamontis a year and a half ago, I guess, in his office. And when Chris and I talked about that, and Chris said, that's the only thing we're missing. That's the only thing we're missing is a national championship, and it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time before we get it. And so, again, I don't know if it's this year. You know, that's the thing, too. I think about all these crazy years, you know, like Coastal Carolina winning it back in 16. They didn't have any business winning a ball game. They didn't have any business being there. They were a veteran team that got hot late. It's crazy to think about, right? Coastal Carolina – down to their last strike, they beat Arizona to win a national championship. I go back a little before that, Fresno State. Fresno State had no business being in Omaha. 
they were basically middle of the pack in their conference. They get hot late, ride a couple of bats to a national championship. And so if Coastal Carolina and Fresno State can do it, why can't we? Why not us? We're more committed to baseball than both of those schools combined. And maybe perhaps there is some pressure that goes along with that. You know, maybe every Bulldog player that gets out there and puts on the M over S probably feels the weight of all of that. And so, you know what? Man, you know, as great as it is here, Clark and Palmero couldn't do it. Hunter Renfro and Adam Frazier couldn't do it. So what makes you think I can do it? And so there is probably some pressure that goes along with that. And that's one of the reasons that I think, and I, listen, I'm not some Pollyanna. I mean, sometimes people you know, put that on us over at Gene's page, but, uh, you know, maybe there have been some people that moderated our message boards maybe 20 years ago that were, that if you disagreed with them, they didn't, they didn't like you. Uh, you know, I, I'm okay with you disagreeing with me, and I'm okay with the, you being wrong, and sometimes I'm wrong. I've had some people at times that have changed my opinion on things because of some, you know, some well-pointed arguments. And I hate to call them arguments. I mean, I, I see it as a debate. I never take that stuff personal. But I also understand this, that, you know, we have a culture and we have a family. And when sometimes people get outside of the family discussion, we vent our frustration. You know, we have a lot of people that get on social media and they'll go attack players. And we talked about that a couple shows ago. Yeah, listen, all that doesn't matter now. Okay, all that's behind us. This is the time of year that we all live for. I look forward to this time of year the entire year. I hate to say I live for this time of year, but it's pretty close. I get really excited when we get down to the end. Okay, we, it's time to go to Hoover. I love going to Hoover, whether we win a tournament or not. I love going over there, watch everybody play. And I love getting in a regional. I love when the bracket comes out, seeing where everybody's sent. And I love it when we go win a ball game or two. Next thing you know, we get to the next round, and then we're fighting for a chance to go to Omaha, you know. So let's put our differences aside and let's just kind of unite behind this team for a little bit because, listen, they are who they are now, right? Can't go out and sign a free agent. And so let's be positive as best we can be and see if we can't be contributors to the cause rather than, you know, complainers about uh, the other things. So I just don't see what we gain by being negative. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's how I feel about it. I don't, think it's, I don't think it's the fans' place to hold anybody accountable. You know what I'm saying? It's one, if you want to stay home, that's fine. Stay home. You want to gripe among your friends, I guess that's cool too. But you know what? I just don't know if that gets us any closer to our goal. Again, maybe I'm wrong. I just don't know that that helps. Speaking of helping Bulldog Burger Company, they're here to help. And they need some help. As you guys have heard me share on the show a couple times now, Bulldog Burger Company hiring at all three locations now, getting ready to open that new spot there on Lake Harbor uh, Road or Boulevard, wherever it is, there in Ridgeland. It's pardon me, Madison County folks. Getting ready to staff that. Ian Fuse going to do a great job down there. Ian Fuse a friend, man. That guy's been so good to me over the years. Excited about what you guys are going to experience down there, having a Bulldog Burger in your own backyard. I've got one in mind right here on University Drive. And if you go to Tupelo, you can get Bulldog Burger up there, Gloucester Street. Two great locations already open and thriving. You can get call-in orders. You can get to-go orders. You can get 
you know, you can you, you do the online stuff to bring it out to the car. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff going on with Bulldog Burger Company. It's a fun place to work. I can personally attest to that through uh, my nephew, Dan, who did a great job and loved Bulldog Burger Company. He loved it. Put on about 15 pounds, too. Uh, so I, I share that with you because I think it's important. You know, I don't partner with people that I don't believe in. I believe in Bulldog Burger Company, and you should, too. Go by, have the spring rolls, find your own favorites. You know, I'm a big fan of the pimentology I'd bake, and I hadn't had that in a while. I probably need to get that this week uh, if, I, if, I, if I get a day off before I go to Hoover. And uh, looking forward to getting down there, of course. But uh, I love getting back home, having a little taste of home. And Bulldog Burger Company is one of those places that reminds me I'm home. They'll treat you that way, too. Go by, check them out. Bulldog Burger Company, the place where people go to meet. M-E-A-T. So the last time we were together, we had won game one over in Tuscaloosa. It was a bit of a struggle, but we managed to win the ball game, of course, 4-2. Uh, had that big seventh inning made some things happen I was curious to see how we would respond and uh, and play on Friday those are the things you kind of look at that and say okay are we are we going to be are we going to be good here are we going to be fired up and ready to go and uh, that's one thing that I love about our team is there are so many people involved in Mississippi State baseball they kind of see a bigger picture and like Tanner Allen said in the little video you know that's one we came to get three and fortunately, we did. But we came out and really played well. I'm trying to get these graphics pulled up here. For some reason, they've got the same box score linked uh, on the website. Let me get that corrected real quick before we proceed here. I thought it was me, but it wasn't. I got it, got it taken care of here. Okay, so they start Dylan Smith. And listen, I had done my research on Dylan Smith, and I was thinking, you know what, we ought to be able to get to this guy. He was 1-6 overall. And uh, listen, he's a guy that you know didn't walk a lot of people. And that's the thing that, that you'll notice. Teams that don't walk a lot of people get hit a lot because they're always around the plate. You know, when you get two strikes on somebody, you don't, I mean, you don't want to be around the plate in an advantage count. You want to try to get a swing and miss there. And I think that's one of the things about Alabama's pitching philosophy that I think has been an issue for them. They are pitching a lot to contact, but they don't get a lot of swing and miss because of the fact that I don't think they really throw the ball enough out of the strike zone. They're, they pound the strike zone and force you to put it in play. They ran across Mississippi State. State was certainly able to do that. So let's break that game down here. Well, I thought Will Bednar was absolutely flawless in the game. That was a good thing, too. You get seven innings from Christian on Thursday, so you only have to throw Sims, and you come out and you get eight from Bednar on uh, on Friday, and all you got to do is throw Brandon Smith. And uh, so our bullpen was in great shape for Saturday. Turns out we didn't need a whole lot of that, but uh, – and we'll get to that a little bit later in the show. But uh, great starts, which led to, I thought, a great weekend. And we played good defense behind them. That always helps. Uh, we do open up the ball game one, two, three. But here's the thing. We were tattooing those baseballs. I mean, we, and we were getting in the advantage counts and uh, forcing them to kind of come to us. And State was really barreling some things up. And if you go back and read my notes, I do a play-by-play article throughout the game. That's one thing that I noted, it's just a matter of time. It just felt like a matter of time because he wasn't fooling us and he wasn't missing many bats. And when you've got a guy that's out there serving some things up and you can barrel him up, it's just a matter of time before you hit some holes there. Bednar matches that with a 1-2-3 in and of his own. And we go back in a second. Luke Hancock flies out the right field. And, man, that ball was absolutely blistered. For a second there, I thought it was going to get down. 
And then Cam James breaks us through. And, man, how great for Cam James to kind of get going there uh, on Friday. You know, Cam's you know, really kind of getting back to being healthy. But um, wind blowing in, and he hits an absolute laser to the scoreboard in left field. I think the fact that he hit the scoreboard probably helped, probably kept the wind off it a little bit. Really kind of got us going. We didn't do much else around it, but I thought it kind of served notice to, to Dylan Smith that, you know what, the wind's blowing in, but you better not get loose and fast with a fastball up and in or we're going to deposit that thing and turn, put it in a sports center highlight. Uh, bottom of second, we come out there again, no hits, but we do issue a two-out walk there, their first uh, base runner, and it was about a 9-10 pitch at bat. So it was a pretty good battle there from Eblin and, and uh, Bednar. But we come right back and get, uh, you know, a punch out. Top of third, we begin to kind of get some separation here. And this really changed the complex the uh, complexion of the game here. So Tanner Leggett comes out, doubles to right field, and then we want Lane to get a bunt down and uh, just can't get it down. And, and great job by the Alabama first baseman who laid out and made a diving catch there. And then Rowdy Jordan doubles down the right field line, chases in a run. Tanner Allen doubles to left center, chases in Rowdy. Now it's a 3 nothing ball game. Logan Tanner uh, gets an infield hit there, and then T.A. goes to third. Now you got runners on the corners uh, with, uh, with two outs. And then uh, Luke Hancock hits the sack fly, drives in a run, makes it a 4 nothing ball game. And then Cam James uh, goes down looking. And I thought that breaking ball was a little bit up, to be honest with you. Bednar, the first thing you do, you, you want after you put up a crooked number and you begin to kind of get a lead and separate is you want to try to get a clean inning if possible. You get a ground out, a strikeout swinging. They finally get a hit on a full count, singled back up the middle, and then we get Hamiter to line out on the very next pitch. So no real threat there, 4 nothing after three. And it really felt like the way Bednar was pitching four runs was going to be enough. Fortunately, we tacked on a few more. But it just felt like they weren't going to be able to kind of figure much out against him. We go one, two, three there in the fourth. Bednar comes back and matches that one, two, three. And a pretty quick inning there. You know, gets a fly out on the first pitch, gets the K on a four-pitch K, and we get a pop-up. Uh, so, you know, it's basically, you know what, you know, eight, nine-pitch inning. So uh, we get to the fifth, and we have a chance again to kind of separate here, and we do. And you got to love it when things are kind of going your way and you capitalize on it. You're not satisfied. And that's one of the things I thought we did this weekend is we showed a little more killer instinct, and that's really big going into the postseason. Uh, they make a mistake. They hit Forsyth on the first pitch. Now, all of a sudden, we got a leadoff runner. Rowdy singles, sends the runner to third. You got runners on first and third. And then uh, Rowdy reads a ball in the dirt and takes second. We've gotten really skilled at that. I saw Cam James do it this weekend, too. It's like w- once we see the trajectory and we kind of know what's up, that secondary lead becomes a pretty rapid path to second base. We're doing a pretty good job making catchers pay for it when they can't block it up clean. T.A. flies out to uh, to center field, and uh, both runners tag. We move up, and, and Lane scores to make it a 5 nothing ball game. Logan Tanner then flies out to right, not deep enough to get it home, but then Luke Hancock singles back up the box to make it a 6 nothing ball game. And just as I said the inning before, it felt like the ball game was over. At this point, it really did, and that was kind of the mood in the stadium. You kind of thought, okay, well, they'll come out here and get Smith, and I think at that point they'd kind of resigned to themselves this ball game is over. Let's save some arms for Saturday and try to win a game. Uh, we, we do make a mistake here. We have a throwing error that allows them to get a runner. Pardon me. Pardon me, pardon me, pardon me. That's Scotty DeBrule that gets on there because uh, we had come through there 
uh, in the bottom of five. And um, uh, he pitches around a one-out double. But, again, it just it never seemed like they were going to be able to string anything together, and he wasn't walking people. We get in the top of six. We don't do much. We do get on, and then we, you know, we, we kind of waste that leadoff runner. We get in the bottom of six, and Bednar, again, doing another quick inning for him. You get a two-pitch line out, a three-pitch fly out, and then a two-pitch fly out. You can do the math on that and see for yourself. It's less than ten pitches. Again, very efficient outing from him. Top of seven, we go one, two, three. Bottom of seven, they go one, two, three. And it just felt like Bednar was getting stronger. Yeah, he'd had some efficient innings. Pitch count was still pretty good. And I, if, I, if I remember correctly, I guess we were at 85 going into the sixth and 94 going into the seventh. Or maybe the, maybe, it's, maybe it's the reverse. Maybe we were at 85 going into the seventh and 94 going into the eighth. But he gets a one, two, three inning, a couple punch outs, and it's just it's so efficient. You get a four-pitch K, a three-pitch K, and then a guy grounds out on the very first pitch. Alabama was helping us. And a lot of it had to do with Bednar. Bednar's out there throwing a heavy ball, kind of forcing those guys to hit his pitch. And those are the things that make you excited just because of the fact that, uh, you know, we're out there dictating terms to them. So we get into the, um, the top of eight, and, uh, you know, we've got a chance here to expand again, and, and we don't. And, again, that's why I was so glad we were able to, to do something a little bit more in the night. But, you know, we had them on the ropes here. Well, it felt like the game was over. It felt like the knockout punch was coming. We get a fly out, and then Cam James hammers a ball down the left field line. I think he actually hit this ball harder than the home run. DeBrule grounds out. We take uh, James to third. So now we've got a runner at third and two outs. They make a change, bring in uh, Jake Eddington in place of Smith, and he walks Kellum Clark on four pitches. And uh, it, just, it just kind of felt like, you know what, if we can just get a hit here, we can break this thing open, and, uh, and we don't. But, uh, again, there's traffic on the base pass, and we're stressing pitchers here. Bottom eight, Bednar's back out. And, listen, he wasn't the best he's been, but he was still really, really good. Gets a punch out. We get a four-pitch walk, another, another K, and then they get a single. And I think there was a lot of hope in the building at that point. And he ran, comes right back, and he strikes out Hammett or looking. Now, this is what led to um, – Brad Bohannon being obje- being ejected from the ball game. The pitch was inside, okay. But here's the deal: when you've been dealing like Will Badnar's been dealing, and you're hitting spots over and over and over, a good catcher over the course of a ball game, especially as things kind of begin to to wind down, will start setting up a little bit farther and farther off the plate. And as long as you're hitting those spots, you're going to get those calls. And that's what happened in that situation is you had Bednar, who had not been wild, that had, not, had only walked one hitter on the night. And so those things happen. You have, umpires will tell you, man, it's kids all over the place. But when you've got a guy like Bednar who's got command of his stuff and he's able to hit his spots regularly, as games begin to kind of separate and you get later, they're going to give you that ball off the plate. They're going to give you sometimes a ball and a half off the plate. Bohannon getting object, getting ejected here wasn't about that pitch. Because here's the deal, you don't really gain anything from that. I mean, you're headed to the ninth inning down six runs, and you have done nothing offensively. I guess they end the night with three hits. I mean, they were completely outmatched. But I think that was about trying to light a fire under his team. And you listen, he probably could have dialed it back a little bit, but I think with so much on the line and those guys bowing and try to get into an NCAA tournament at large bid somewhere, he was sending a message to his team. But you know what? Our season isn't over. 
let's get fired up and come out and be ready to play tomorrow. But, uh, you know, not, not much happens for those guys uh, after that. You know, and again, I love the, the fact that we tacked on another run there in the ninth. Even though the game essentially is over, you know, we're going to have to continue to work those uh, one-run innings at times and try to get an insurance run late or, or win a ball game late. So I like the fact that we executed some ninth inning stuff here and, and made it work for us. But they help us. You know, we get a walk to open the inning and then another walk. They change pitchers. And then T.A. hits a ground ball, but both guys move forward. So now you get runners at second, third with less than two outs. Logan Tanner grounds out. Ground ball to the right side. That's just good offensive execution right there. Don't try to do too much. Let's just get a ball to the right side, get the run home. We do. And then they get us out of the inning. It's 7-0. We bring in Brandon Smith, and I've read some comments, and people are like, I don't understand it. Why did we waste Smith? We didn't waste Smith. But you're not going to send Bednar back out there when he's already thrown 112 pitches. Okay, that's just – we're not going to do that. And there's no need to do that in a ball game like this. But I think Smith threw, what, 11 pitches, and it's uh, it's a 1-2-3 inning, the ball game's over. And so we've secured the series, and we've been there so many times. It's one of those things you think, man, I hope these guys are still hungry. I hope they're not satisfied with just winning a series. Thankfully, they weren't. So let's run through uh, a couple highlights here in the box score before we move to the next game. Uh, Rowdy, a two-for-four night, scored a couple runs. T.A., of course, uh, one-for-four. Logan Tanner, uh, an RBI, and then a single earlier in the ballgame. Uh, Luke Hancock, a couple ribbies for us. Cam James, two-for-four. And it's good to see Cam swinging a hot bat. And listen, I know many of you are thinking, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do with this? Steve's always pimping this kid. You know, now that he's healthy again, this kid's going to be fine. Just trust me. I just – I think he's going to be fine. People forget – He's a freshman. Kellum Clark didn't have much to show for it, but, man, he hit some rockets, man. He absolutely did. And, uh, you know, that's the thing. He he adds some fear to the bottom of that order. Those are the things that I look at, and I think, you know, it's like I like this whole concept of, okay, you got Cam James hitting five and Scotty DeBrule hitting six and Kellum hitting seventh because you get Cam on – Scotty is skilled enough with the bat to move the runner around, and all of a sudden, Kellum's the guy that can drive him in. Not to mention, Cam can steal a base. You know, and so you get Cam on, you know, in a, in a situation to open an inning, all of a sudden, you know, you've got a real scoring threat. And that adds some length to our, our lineup, and we have been missing that at times. And, and how many times have we just been kind of counting, you know, spots in the order thinking, okay, when's Rowdy coming back up? When's T.A. coming back up? And then we get through, you know, one through four, and we're thinking – well, we're not going to score again for at least two more innings. But now all of a sudden you add Kellum Clark to the mix, and I think he has made everybody down there a little bit better. So let's jump into uh, the Saturday game, which was the one that uh, had everybody a little bit nervous, shall we say, especially, you know, we start Jackson Fristo. You guys have heard me talk about this on the show many times. I'm 100% in favor of that. Even though he didn't get a great outing, and I still think that kid's going to end up being a big-time Friday night guy for us over the course of the next two years. I, I really do. I believe in Jackson Fristo. He was not expected to pitch near as much as he had this year. I think in some cases he might have already hit the wall. But you've heard me talk about it. You throw Fristo out there, and all of a sudden they stack the order with left-handers, and you bring Hootie in, and he absolutely shoves. That's exactly what happened on Saturday. That's exactly what we needed. We don't need to spot somebody two and three runs, though right so Fristo still got some things to work through 
but the plan worked for us because you know let's let's assume you know especially on Sunday we're going to score some runs and we did so let's jump on this thing and uh, kind of get through it real quick so we go one two three there and the well we don't go one two three we we hit it to a double play to end the inning there uh, strikeout swinging and I really thought Rowdy got to, got got a bad call on that very first pitch but um, you know. McCrary came in, did a good job. It was his first college start. And so bottom of one, we walked the leadoff hitter, but it wasn't like a four-pitch deal. You get a foul, a ball, a foul, so you're in a one-two count. Then you throw a purpose pitch. He doesn't chase. He fouls one off. It's a two-two count, and it's back-to-back balls. And I didn't think, you know, at that point I thought we were okay. And we give up a single. They could have charged the error here. I would have ruled it a hit. But uh, basically they knocked it through Luke Hancock and, you know, I don't know if Josh Hatcher makes that play. I don't know if Andres Galarraga makes that play. It was an absolute rocket right at first base, and they go first to third there. And then we let them go second to third uh, because of a wild pitch, or runners second third on the wild pitch. So they got two guys in scoring position. The first two hitters of the inning are in scoring position uh, with less than two outs. I thought the kid grew up a little bit. He battles back and strikes out Prater. Who is a stud, man? I mean, he really is. That's a catcher from Alabama. He's not maybe the receiver that many people anticipated, but I guess 13 home runs for him this year. I mean, this is a guy that's a good mistake hitter. And so we have a lengthy at bat there, and we get him to swing and miss for strike three. It was a huge, huge out at the time. And then we give up the single that allows two runs to score. And uh, rather than pout, we get a fly out and a pop out, and we get out of the inning, and we're thinking, okay, all right, settle down, kid. We'll be okay. We're going to score a couple runs, too. We open up the second with a single to ride from Luke Hancock, and then we get a ground out, but we move the runner to second. DeBrulden flies out, and then Kellen Clark strikes out. And, again, it was a good A-B. They just kind of caught him guessing late. He fouls off the first four pitches, and most of those were, were timed pretty well. He had a couple fastballs he hit straight back. People are going to make a mistake and challenge him with a fastball, and he's going to put them on Sports Center. This kid has some incredible power. But we get out of that, and we don't get much from it. So bottom of second, this is where, this is where you know, Fristo just really kind of fell apart, I thought. Even though we get out of the inning only giving up the run, we walk a guy on four pitches, and none of those pitches were close. None of them. Then we go to Jarvis, and then there's three, three no count. None of those pitches were competitive. Then we get the you know the take the you know the get me over strike and uh, and we walk him so you know we've thrown nine pitches in the inning and eight of them are non-competitive pitches. Then they get a bunt down he fills it and he throws to first but there's now runners at second and third with uh, with one out. We get the ground out but the run scores and then we get Hammeter to fly out again, but it's a three nothing ball game and so you start thinking okay listen here's the deal kid. And I hate to say it in that way. I'm not being disrespectful. I'm a Jackson Fristo fan. I really think he's going to do a good job for us. You know, I go, I'll, I go all the way back to that kid having to pitch an opening weekend of the year in a Globe Life uh, field, you know, against a top-10 team, and he went out there and gave us all he had. I mean, that, that kid's got some toughness about him, but I, I think this is just one of those things where maybe the, you know, the season's probably weird on him a little bit. But, you know, we go out there, and then we, we just kind of lose it. You know, it's like we battle through the first – and then we kind of lose it in the second. But if you look at both of those innings, you know, we get two guys on to open the inning, and you're going to give up runs. I mean, that's just the way baseball works. I mean, you know, we're not good enough at this point to go out there and give people, you know, free bases. And that's what happened. The, the 
first and second hitter in both innings reach base and then three of the four score. That is a recipe to get you beat. So they make a change here, bring in Shamblin in place of McNair. Again, I I thought uh, McNair did a good job for him. And then Shamblin gets a one, two, three inning, but we're putting the ball in play here. Shamblin doesn't scare me. And he's got decent numbers and he's got decent stuff, but he doesn't scare me. And I thought, you know, the Bulldogs, that's the bottom third of the order, putting the ball in play. And I said, you know what, we're going to get to this guy. And it was just really a matter of time. We, then we bring in Hootie. And so the very first guy that he sees gets a single up the middle. Then we get Sam Denton to ground into a double play, and then we get Diodotti to ground out. And here's the deal. That single from Prater, that was pretty much all they got on, on Houston Harding until the eighth inning. He absolutely held the game where it was until the offense could kind of get going. And that's what you want him to do. And, again, that's the recipe. And so I've seen some comments. People saying, oh, well, we need this one. We need to start it. No. No, for whatever reason, this works. Stick with Fristo and hope that he can, uh, you know, get you a couple of clean innings next time. And maybe that's the, maybe that's the, the, the message. It said, listen, we just need you to open the ball game and let's get to the order one time. And if you're still dealing, we'll let you stay in. If not, we're going to lift you. Let's just kind of take the pressure off of him and say, listen, just give me two or three innings out here. We'll bring in Hootie. I think Harding's better out of the pen. I just don't think he's got a good enough fastball to face a lineup stack with right-handers. But great job by him. And so it's a 3-0 ball game, and we get to the fourth. And, again, we're putting the ball in play. Don't have much to show for it yet. T.A. rips one out to center field. They get it. Logan Tanner grounds out the short. Great play by one over there. Then Luke Hancock singles the ball back up the box, and then Cam strikes out swinging. Uh, but, you know, I just I, – I felt like it – again, it just felt like a matter of time. Bottom of four, one, two, three inning, very efficient. Um, you know, less than two, ten pitches in the inning. Top of five, and this is when things got a little bit sexy right here for us. And I'm going to talk a little bit about this stupid call, too. I know some of you disagree, and that's okay. You've got the right to be wrong. It's America. Many of many people exercise that right more freely than others. But we get some things rolling here against Shamblin. That's the main thing here is that, you know, we've been kind of waiting him out, waiting him out, waiting him out. DeBrule singles to left field, doing a great job working the other way. That's who he is. Kellum Clark then hammers a single through the left side. And then DeBrule takes third, and they decide to throw through, and then Kellum takes second. So now all of a sudden we've got the first two runners on with less than two outs. Nobody out. We're expected to score here. Tanner Leggett then hits a chopper to short. And it is important to understand it was too short. Now, they call interference here on Kellum Clark, and Lamonis loses his mind. He was right to lose his mind. And here's the thing that I want to say about this, because there are a lot of people out there that say, oh, well, there was contact from the runner. So there is going to be contact on the base path at times. Now, Kellum Clark has a duty to try to avoid a play uh, a player you know, fielding a baseball. He has a duty to avoid that, whether that means to slow down or veer around. He's not supposed to flash into the field of vision. That's one of the rules of baseball. This ball has hit the shortstop. Now, for some reason, the third baseman thought, you know what, I can flash over and make that play. That's not an unreasonable thing. But here's the deal. Everybody can't be the primary fielder. 
everybody can't be protected from interference. On that play, Kellum Clark has a right to the base path. He is not impeding the shortstop making the play there. And the third baseman initiated a contact. The third baseman's running over there and brushes him with his glove, and they call interference. And so it ultimately is scored a fielder's choice. Clark is out. Everybody goes to their bag. Leggett gets first, and uh, DeBrugge goes back to third. So here's the thing that I want to say about this, and I've tried to explain it on Gene's page to the point that people think I'm arguing. I'm not arguing. But there are a few things I want to say about this. To call obstruction or interference, obstruction is on the fielder, interference is on the runner. It can't be a 50-50 call. There can't be any ambiguity. There can't be any second guessing. It can't be, well, maybe this or maybe that. When you have a ball that is hit to the left side that either player can field, there is going to be some judgment involved in that. But this ball was hit directly to the shortstop who was charging the ball to make the play. That's why he and the third baseman collided. And so they benefit here from an umpire who is anticipating a call. And that's the thing I think about, too, is like you're watching the runner or you're watching the play. What, which, what, what are you watching here? And I think, I think in hindsight, when you ask him at the end of the year, probably privately, never made it publicly, he'd probably say, you know what, I, I probably jumped the gun a little bit there. But there are a lot of people that say, oh, well, you know, Steve, you know, well, you know, Kellum Clark's supposed to stop there. No, he's not. And because here's what happens. If we're going to set that precedent that, okay, if you're at third and you can't make the play, well, then just, just you know, I almost said something I shouldn't have. Uh, let's just run full speed and we'll just run into the runner and we'll just, you know, claim interference. And so everybody can't be a protective fielder. Everybody can't be subject to interference because it's very, very simple to understand. It is supposed to be a routine play. And this was a routine play. It was a chopper out to short going directly to the shortstop. And so the shortstop is to protect the fielder in that situation. You got a guy ranging from his left 10, 15 feet away trying to get over there and make a play. Uh, He's not protected. He's not because it's not a routine play at that point. And you don't just have to take my word for it. I have talked to numerous people, and I even had a conversation with a couple of people in the uh, press box that aren't media people. Seated to my right in the press box at the University of Alabama, they have an umpire that is the official scorer. They have another umpire that operates uh, the scoreboard. Both of those guys are local. Both of those guys are Alabama fans. Both of those guys umpire the false scrimmages at the University of Alabama. Initially, they said, hey, that's interference because I saw contact. A little bit later, as video began to make the rounds, those guys said, you know what? Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it wasn't. And so the, the, the thing that I go back to is that, uh, you know, that was a huge play in the ball game at the time. And I understand, you know, we want to prevent and get it right. And so rather than, you know, kind of, you know, hamstring the umpire here, this is where I think college baseball needs to make an advancement in the replay rule. Help the guy out. When there is a judgment call like this where there appears to be some ambiguity, make it a reviewable play. It's as simple as that. Make it a reviewable play. And listen, there's only like three things you can look at right now. What is it, fair or foul, safe or out? Uh, You know, there's a couple of little things. But when you've got a play like that, let's give – those guys the tools to work with 
to ensure that they're right. Because I think if you go back and look at the replay, as an umpire, you say, you know what? There was no malicious intent by the runner who was actually past the shortstop at that point. He's just running the third. The third baseman initiates a contact. And I think because you go back and you look at that and say, you know what, there's a little gray area here, you don't make that call. It, it didn't cost us a ball game, thankfully. So I'm going to move on from that because I'm so sick and tired of arguing about that. Uh, and you may disagree, and that's okay. That's absolutely okay. I still love you. We'll still be friends. You'll still be wrong, but um, we'll still be friends. So it turns out it only cost us an out because our freshman shortstop, and I thought this was one of the best at-bats in the ball game, with all of that craziness going on, with Lamonis out there barking at the umpires, with the umpires, everybody's all upset, and the crowd's all emotional, the team's fired up. Rather than let himself get elevated emotionally, Lane Forsyth steps up and delivers an RBI single to left center. Drives in the run, leg hit goes to third. Now, all of a sudden, we got runners at first and third. They change pitchers. It's a 3-1 ball game. And, again, we got runners on the corners with just one out. And then they throw a wild pitch. So now all of a sudden the emotional, you know, toll in all this is on Alabama. It's like all this craziness has happened, and now State's in the ballgame. We've got a high-pressure situation. He didn't handle it. So you got the wild pitch, and so you put runners at second and third, and then he hits Rowdy to load the bases. T.A. grounds out to second, drives in a run, makes it 3-2. And then, then he walks Logan Tanner and walks in a run to tie the ballgame. I think that's not, that's not correct. That loaded bases again. And then he walked Luke Hancock on five pitches to walk the run in. They go out and visit. Cam James then uh, hits a pretty good ball out there to third. And uh, you, know my, you know my philosophy about this. Ball don't lie, right? So this is a guy that got the benefit of a bad call and the baseball gods are watching. Ground ball to third baseman. And what does he do? He makes an error. That allowed another run to score and to extend the inning. And then um, we get out of there with a 4-3 lead. And at that point, it really felt like we had withstood Alabama's best punch. And they had some assistance there on the bad call, but it really felt like, you know what, all these things have gone your way, and uh, now we've got the lead, and uh, we don't plan to give it back, and we didn't. And then we go right back out there, Houston Harding, you guys, are, I've talked about him before, but this is a guy that's got some – he's a different guy, but he's got some toughness about him. We go out there and get a one, two, three inning, and uh, it's a, it's a seven-pitch inning. Seven pitches. I mean, you talk about being efficient. And you could see in our countenance, after we go up and put up the four runs and then we get a quick inning like that, we're bouncing back in the dugout and we were feeling it. You could just tell – and I tweeted that out. There was considerably more energy in the Mississippi State dugout than Alabama. It was like Alabama knew the game was over. It was just a matter of what the final score was going to be. And we took care of that in the sixth. And lo and behold, what happens again is uh, Kellum Clark hits the ball out to third. And what happens? The baseball gods are watching. It's another error on third baseman. Think about that for a second, right? It's like this guy – acts all crazy and wild and runs into our runner and is gifted and out. And then the very next two plays, he makes errors. The next two times he has a chance to fill the baseball. So, and it's like, again, in hindsight, you think, okay, this is the guy you guys want to go, you know, pin this on. You know, it's like, oh, well, yeah, he made the right play. No, 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 he didn't. 
He didn't make the right play, and he demonstrated in the next two plays that he's not he's not ready for that kind of stuff. It just it just blows my mind. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, but again, ball don't lie. And then the short game takes over, and I was so glad that Chris did this because listen, I'm a big fan of the short game, especially in the bottom third of the order. I think those guys have to be good bunners and have to be guys that can extend innings and then turn lineup over for you and give your leadoff hitter a chance to hit against a guy in the stretch. And so T, uh, Tanner Leggett lays down a beautiful bunt. I mean, it is a beaut. And then what do we do? We come up. Now we got runners at uh, first and second. So now we're thinking, okay, let's play for one, maybe two. We lay down another bunt here. And what do they do? They wait and wait and wait and wait, wait for that thing to go, and then they throw it, and it's uh, it's another error. Now all of a sudden, uh, bases are loaded. I guess one run there. Yeah, run scored there, yeah. And so it's a 5-3 ball game, and now we've got runners at second, third, and top of the orders up. And, you know, it just really felt at that point that we had them on the ropes and the big shot was coming. We talk about adding length to the lineup. Here you go. Bottom third of the order, starting to rally, getting the run home, getting two runners in scoring position with nobody out, the top of the order up. That's good baseball. And Rowdy singles through the right side, drives those guys in, makes it a 7-3 ball game. And T.A. grounds in double play. Logan Tanner gets a single, and then Luke uh, you know, flies out. And th- really, this is the ball game. I mean, it's 7-3, and the way Houston's dealing, you're thinking, we're done. Guys, you know what he does next for an encore? It's ridiculous, man. It's a six-pitch inning in the sixth. Six. Ground out to third, fly out to right, and then a foul out to the catcher on a four-pitch A-B. Six pitches. We're right back in the dugout, and I can tell you, Alabama was done. They were absolutely – they had nothing left. Cam comes up there, rocks a single back out the middle. The Brule strikes out swinging. I thought he – I thought there was a call on strike two. I thought it was a bad one. And then uh, Cam goes to second on a wild pitch. And, again, great job breeding that ball in the dirt. But we don't do anything with it. We get a runner to score in position with less than two outs. Kellum pops out. And then uh, Leggett strikes out swinging on three pitches. One thing's about Leggett, one thing I would change about him is uh, let's understand that we're, we're, uh, we're a punch and Judy guy, right? We might be a gap-to-gap doubles guy. On a good day, we're not a home run hitter, okay? So, we don't need to go up there dropping our shoulder trying to hit tanks. So, bottom of seven, we send Hootie right back out there again. And it's not – this time he gets – it's less than ten pitches. But he gets a one, two, three inning again. And I'll, and you just kind of look around and you realize that the Alabama people are in trouble. And they are really in trouble. And the, everybody knows that some of the fans are already making their way. Uh, and, and top of the eighth, you know, I, I think – this again, I'd like to see us have a little more killer instinct left late and maybe score a run in the last innings. And Chris would love that too, but uh, we don't do much here. And I'd hate to say it's because we lost focus. I really want to say it's really because of the fact they had a guy out there that was dealing pretty good on the mound. Uh, that's really the, the, the bigger part of this. You know, I, I think you know, they made a pitch and change, brought in their closer, they brought in Lee, and who was outstanding, their best relief guy. And, and they rode him for a little while. And he gets uh, Forsyth looking, gets rowdy looking. T.A. singles up the middle in the very first pitch. And then Tanner pops out there. And uh, so bottom of eight, and this was really 
their last hurrah. Uh, so it, it's so crazy to think about all this stuff too. I mean, we, so we, we probably, in hindsight, you'd say, well, we probably should have took Harding out. But you know what? The guy had retired 15 straight. What I mean, what evidence at that point was there to think, okay, this guy's tiring? I mean, he's had you know three innings in a row of less than 10 pitches. He, he doesn't throw hard enough to hurt himself, and we've got a four-run lead. I, I wouldn't even be thinking about pulling the guy at that point. We get a ground out the short, and then we walk a guy on four pitches. Maybe at that point I'm thinking, okay, well, we're okay. I gave him one hitter. And then he gives up a single, and then there is the um, – you know, the ground out to the pitcher. But, you know, they've got they got a couple guys on here. Now, all of a sudden, you're thinking, all right, what, what's fixing to happen? You know, what, what's, what's fixing to happen? Are they going to be able to do some things uh, here? And then we walk Sam Denton on four pitches. But, again, there was no evidence in the inning before that Harding was losing control or beginning to show any fatigue. And maybe he was riding a wave of emotion or whatever, but um, I wouldn't have pulled him. And, of course, again, in hindsight, you look back and say, yeah, I probably should have got him. Yeah, I think you take that chance with a four-run lead when you need six outs to go. And, and let's not forget that, you know, it's an 0-2 count to open the inning and he gets a ground out to short. So you're thinking, hey, we're five outs away from a sweep. You stick with it, even if he gives up a couple of hits there. But we do get him out. We bring in Preston Johnson. And uh, – you know, bases are loaded there. It's a high-pressure situation, and he gets a fly out to center. Thardy did a really good job there. I'm a Preston Johnson fan. I really am. I think he's going to do a great job for us. Uh, they bring in Will Freeman, who was the guy that shut us down on Thursday. And uh, we just don't do much. We do. DeBrule does get a single through the left side there, but we just we don't do a whole lot there. And then uh, we bring in Landon Sims there for tonight. I didn't think that he was nearly as sharp. But you know what? We got to see how he's going to respond on one day's rest. Because when we get into a regional, you know, he's probably going to have to pitch a couple times. We get into a super, he's probably going to have to pitch a couple times. And so we've managed him pretty carefully all year long. So now he should be fresh. Uh, he, he wasn't as sharp, but again, this is a relatively new experience for him. Probably, you know, he's only done it a couple times all year. But he comes out and gets a case swing him. We give up a single and a walk. And it looks like, okay, he's not able to finish these guys because that was the, the issue. Eblin, it's a one-two count. And then he hammered that ball to left. And then we get into a situation where we, we're, again, in a one-two count with Jarvis, and we can't finish him and he walks. Then we get the, uh, you know, the ground ball to third. And I don't, I don't fault Tanner Leggett for trying to end the ball game here. He fields the ball, steps on the bag, and throws a little bit wide of first. Then the runner takes third. And he's trying to end the game. Gets a second out. But, you know, you got to try to make that play. This is a Southeastern Conference. And so we, and then we get Wilson to fly out, and the ball game's over. And so it's exciting to think about, okay, we got the sweep. And so we can feel good about that. But we still needed a little bit of help. You know, we entered the day worried, you know, what What if we lose and Tennessee loses and Ole Miss wins and all of a sudden it's a three-way tie and we don't win the tiebreaker, we end up being the five seed. That was our worry. But about halfway through, I guess, the third inning, we found out Tennessee had won the ball game, which eliminated that possibility. And, of course, Ole Miss loses anyway. And then we win. So all of the three things that needed to happen, none of them happened. And so it's, uh, I think it's important to kind of understand that too, is that, you know, sometimes we worry ourselves about things that, um, while possible, are not always probable. 
So we win the series, and uh, I think it's important now let's look around the league uh, to kind of see how things laid out. But I'm sure by now you look at the bracket, but we'll go over it one time. Today's podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast. What's the best way to help you and your finances thrive? The answer can be overwhelming with all the financial misinformation out there. Fortunately, you can turn to Nerd Wallet's objective finance journalists to set things straight and help you make smart decisions with your own money. The nerds have helped me get smarter about things like planning for my tax bill so I don't dread April every single year, managing finances with a partner without causing a breakup, putting away more money for retirement since I'm not going to do this podcast forever. Sorry, folks. And also boosting my credit score since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. Saving for an emergency fund because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. The nerds also explain the real impact that the latest financial headlines could have on your life. Weekly financial check-ins with Smart Money help you spend more time doing what matters and less time worrying about what doesn't. Let NerdWallet's trusted experts untangle today's web of financial misinformation. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Bulldog fans, rodeo season is here. I tried the Dixie National Rodeo. Get ready to roll, man. And uh, I remember being a kid, that was like the biggest highlight for us. My grandmother would get us tickets every year, and me and my brother would wear our cowboy outfits. We'd put our boots on, have our chaps, our vest, and we'd go up there, and just in case one of the cowboys got a little bit scared to get on a horse or a bull, we were willing to do it. Yeah, for sure. Guys, boots aren't just for going out to a country western bar and doing a little boot scooting. Maybe you got a little Texas two-step in your game. Tacovas can make you look better than ever. Absolutely. And here's the deal, too. That's the thing, the versatility of Tacovas is you can wear them somewhere nice or you can live life where you don't go gently. That's what Tacovas does for you. Yeah, it's a rugged, handsome boot. It's my favorite boot brand, and it should be yours, too. Be sure and check them out. Tacovas believes in Western for all people, and you can feel that when you go into their stores, when you walk in, you'll be greeted like family, offered a boot shine and a drink, and maybe even an adult beverage if you prefer, and you can get custom fitted for a new pair of Tacovas boots. You can get custom leather stamping or branding, whatever you need to make it feel somewhat individual. Look up your closest store at tecovis.com. But if you can't make it to a store, Tecovis delivers the most premium quality and most comfortable Western goods right to your door. Visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And you know what, partner? Point your toes west. Time before we get to the top 10 list. Very quickly here, let's uh, look at the SEC standings and the scores. You know, of course, State sweeps Alabama. Uh, Ole Miss takes two of three from Georgia. A month ago, I thought Ole Miss was really in some trouble having to finish up with Vandy and Georgia. They win both of those series. And despite their losses, I think you look at it and say, you know what? Hey, good job. Because I really thought they would go in the tank. They're going to host probably a 12 or 13 type seed in the uh, tournament. But uh, they're going to host. Tennessee takes two out of three from South Carolina. Uh, Auburn, of course, uh, wins their series. And then Kentucky takes one from Vanderbilt, which is huge for us because it enabled us to be the three rather than uh, the four. And then LSU takes a series from A&M. Rob Childress, of course, relieved of his duties uh, on Sunday. 
and then Florida swept by Arkansas. I have read with great interest, too. Some, again, we talk about this Arkansas thing. You know, I, I don't know sometimes if we watch the same ball games, and uh, sometimes I think we watch a different sport. But, um, you know, Florida had a lead in that ball game and blew it. I don't think that Florida is maybe what we expected them to be, but I think sometimes, you know, people are discounting them a little bit. Uh, but I thought they might be able to go to Arkansas and get one. They don't. And I really think that has got them in a very precarious situation about hosting. I know, again, some discussions on Gene's page, oh, Florida's a lock. Florida's not a lock. They're absolutely not a lock. If it boils down between South Carolina and Florida, South Carolina's getting that spot. What? Yes. South Carolina finished one game behind Florida in the standings. South Carolina has the number two strength of schedule in the country, and they are nine spots ahead of Florida in the RPI, and they swept three games in Florida. So if you're looking at those two teams side to side, there is no conversation to be had. South Carolina would host over Florida. Now, of course, we've got an SEC tournament to play. Florida plays Kentucky, right? And then South Carolina plays Alabama. So that could factor in. You know, but let's just say South Carolina goes and wins that ball game. Let's say Florida does, and they're on an even playing field, and let's say they both go one and two in Hoover. I don't think Florida makes up any ground on South Carolina. I mean, look at the math yourself. You say, oh, well, Steve, it's Florida. I, I get it. I understand it. But also understand, too, that uh, if we're going to put all these matrix available to us, these information, you got to follow that stuff, right? If we have the number two strength of schedule in the country and we beat somebody three times and we were ahead of them nine, ten spots in the RPI and they got to host over us, we would riot in the streets, and rightfully so. So looking at standings one more time, and this is really the last time it even matters, right? Because at this point forward, the SEC champion's been crowned in Arkansas, and I will pat myself a little bit on the back here because when the the, uh, coaches picked Arkansas third in the West, I told you guys on this program, but I thought a lot of people were sleeping on Arkansas. They proved to be better than I expected. But Arkansas, much better team than I think a lot of people anticipated them to be, including myself. But I did think they were better than third in the SEC West. So running down the East, Tennessee wins – uh, 20 and 10 record, which is the same as Mississippi State. Vanderbilt is second. And what's crazy is because of that rain out with Alabama, it cost Vanderbilt a share of the East and kept them uh, out of uh, probably the top two seed because they would have had a common opponent with Tennessee and Mississippi State and would have won both of those series. They would be um, the number two, but they're not the number four. Florida was the preseason number one. They finished third in the East. Of course, South Carolina four. And we knew South Carolina would be a little bit better. I think they probably finished about what most people expected. Georgia 13 and 17. I think that Georgia LSU ball game in the bracket is probably a play-in game for the NCAA tournament. Kentucky 12 and 18. They're out short of them winning the tournament. Missouri, of course, 8 and 22 and 15 and 36 overall. I still want to vomit when I think about it, just like all of you guys. Arkansas 22 and 8. And you know what's crazy? Most years, 20 wins or 21 wins wins a league. But you got three 21 teams, 20 or 20 plus teams in the league this year. And the fact that we could finish third in the league as great as it was, I think is pretty impressive. 
Arkansas ends the year with a 42-10 and 10 record. We end the year with a 40-13 and 13 record, and you may recall we canceled some non-conference games. Remember that? We didn't lose any games in the SEC to weather. We did lose a handful of non-conference games. So when you begin to look at it, people are still hung up on this so sweep. And listen, I got it. They beat us head-to-head. I just said that about South Carolina and Florida. I just don't think we're as far back as some people want to, want to kind of believe. They beat us by two games in the standings, and they, uh, they won two more games than we did on the season. Ole Miss, 18-12. and 12. Uh, finished third in the West, 38-17 overall. LSU, 13-17. and 17. I think that's about where they were picked. Well, maybe we'll look at that uh, on Tuesday night. But, um, but uh, you know, 34-21 overall. And, again, I think they, they have to win that game against Georgia in the SEC tournament. I think one of those teams will be eliminated from contention. And it's so crazy how two teams are similarly situated end up playing each other. It makes it easy on the committee. Alabama, 12-17, 29-22 overall. RPI-wise, those guys are good, but, man, they got to make a run in the tournament to have any shot. I just don't see it happening. Auburn, 10-20 uh, and 20 in the league and 25-36 and 36 overall. Is that right? 25-26, excuse me. They get Ole Miss that first ball game. Now, you guys know as well as I do, Ole Miss's pitching depth has been shaky anyway, and then they lose Gunnar Hogland, and uh, all the best to you, Gunnar, in, in your recovery. But who are they going to trot out there on Tuesday? And Auburn can swing it a little bit. Now, I don't know who Auburn's going to trot out there either. But I know this. I know Butch Thompson understands how to play baseball and how to pitch it in Hoover. I won't be the least bit surprised if Auburn beats Ole Miss. And that might actually be a good thing for Ole Miss. You can say, Steve, what are you talking about? Now, well, they don't have a shot at the top eight. I don't care what anybody else says. They don't. There's too much to overcome. But also, too, if you're not going to be a top eight – and you're as beat up as Ole Miss has been, losing that first game and getting home and resting may be the best thing that happens. Because you're already locked in as a host, right? If you can't truly play your way up and you can't play your way out, just get on over there and get done. Maybe a good thing for them. And then, of course, A&M, uh, 9-21 in the league, second worst in the conference. So that's the final look at the standings and uh, the final look at the SEC. We're done with SEC play other than our tournament. And uh, real quickly, I'll run down these uh, brackets real quick for you, and then we'll get to the top ten list. It's going to be a longer show today. I know some of you guys love that. But um, I figure with all that's happened, we had a lot to discuss. We needed to uh, to kind of get on this. But um, So it all starts on Tuesday. I will make the drive over on Tuesday. And uh, I love watching SEC baseball, so I'm going to go over there and watch a couple ball games, you know, check in the hotel. And I'll be there because, you know, we play at 9.30 on Wednesday morning. I don't want to run the risk of getting up early and all of a sudden there's an accident on the highway on the way to Birmingham and I missed the ball game. So I'm going to go Tuesday. It all starts at 9.30, Kentucky versus Florida. And we played a winner of that game. I would have to say you got to like Florida, you know, because, they, you know, they just simply have a better offense. And it may be good for us. I mean, you know, we get a chance to play them. It's an RPI boosting opportunity for us. Uh, Alabama and South Carolina, that's the second game. The winner of that game will play Tennessee. I like South Carolina in the game. After watching, uh, you know, Alabama, you know, pitch it, I, I just – I don't know. I don't know. But neither of these teams are, are going to be lighted up offensively. That's really a coin flip. But, you know, I, I would say South Carolina would win that game. 
but we'll see. LSU and Georgia, that could go either way. I kind of like LSU. I just think that there's some there's something about Hoover that brings out some magic in them. The winner, of course, plays Arkansas. And then Auburn and Ole Miss, you know, everything suggests that Ole Miss would win until you begin to look at pitching depth, and I think it's going to be a pretty even ball game in that respect. I think both of these teams really lack pitching depth. And uh, listen, you know, Bianco has done some good things in Hoover too. I mean, let's not discount that. There have been some, he's taken some teams to Hoover that you think, man, these guys don't have a shot. And the next thing you know, they're they're playing into the weekend. So that's how it, it's kind of breaking out. Of course, the winner of that game plays Vanderbilt. We are in the right side of the bracket. If we really want to make a run at this thing, you get Arkansas and Vandy on the other side. And the best thing about this is too is like, okay, we let's say we win Friday, and then we play Tennessee on Thursday and you win that game, you know, you've got two big time SEC East opponents, of course, Tennessee with a higher RPI. And I don't know how, how much we can really help ourselves. I think the main thing we have to do though, is not go over there and get embarrassed. I really don't want to go 0-2. I want to at least win a game, but we just need to go over there. I think and people say, well, Steve, have we done enough to get a top eight national seed? Yes, we have. But we don't need to go over there and hurt ourselves, if that makes sense. So if we go over there and get drilled a couple times, you know, that, that could that's gonna be a lasting impression with the committee. We just need to go over there and take care of business and yeah, you know, we need to go try to win a ball game or two. Simple as that. All right, let's get to the top ten list. Brought to you by the fine folks at Johnnypacker.com. Again, that's Johnnypacker.com. If you're looking for sunglasses, and you probably are, and you should be, instead of wearing that old scratched up pair that's been riding around in the floorboard of your car all winter. Get some new ones. You can find some fashionable frames at an affordable price right at johnnypacker.com. All the sunglasses named after towns in Mississippi, what do they say? Some Hollywood flair with some golden, or Hollywood style with golden triangle flair. You guys know this too. You have an opportunity to make a purchase, and then a portion of that proceeds will go to the Cystic Rosas Foundation. Very, very important cause, improving the quality of life of people that were born with a disease that there is no known cure. Also, if you see sunglasses you want on there that say sold out, don't panic. Send them a contact us, little email thing there, and they'll get them for you. They'll get them ordered because what has happened is side traffic has spiked. Sales have spiked, but don't be discouraged if you see they're sold out. They can still get them for you. Just sometimes that uh, the way the website is set up, you guys are buying it faster than the site can be updated. Okay? So thanks for doing that. And let me give you some, uh, some encouragement not just because you need sunglasses and not just because it's a company run by Mississippi State people and not just because a portion of your purchase goes to the Cystic Rosas Foundation, but I give you a 10% discount. How about that? Promo code Boneyard. That's right. 10% on me. Boneyard, save 10% off your purchase. Go make your order today at johnnypacker.com. Top 10 list. Now, let me give you guys some, some background here. I let Roy set the schedule this week because we have gotten several Every time that you guys message me a name or you tweet at me or Roy, we put it on a list. And so sometimes I don't always depend on Roy to get the list together. And so this week I thought, you know what, rather than wreck my brain and try to remember who said what, I said, Roy, you set the schedule. And so Roy has picked all three. We're going to do some, uh, we're gonna do some uh, British rock and roll today. We're going to do some classic R&B, female R&B on Wednesday. And then we're going to do some metal on Friday. All right? So that's the schedule. I won't tell you who. But today it's Judas Priest. 
Now, I was a little bit late to the Judas Priest bandwagon. The Judas Priest have been making records for a long time before I'd ever heard of them. And I don't know if you guys know this, the, 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 the name Judas Priest is actually derived from a Bob Dylan song. It's about a Frankie Lee and Judas Priest. They took it from that song. I didn't know that until today. Maybe you did. But uh, listen, I, this is going to sound really crazy and silly. And, and it was, listen, this is my high school year, so don't judge me too, uh, too harshly. But I just didn't, I, I, I couldn't get over the fact that Rob Halford had short hair. It's like you got all these guys rocking and everybody's wearing leather and riding motorcycles and, and he's out there looking like a guy that just got off a, you know, a, a double shift at Subway. You know, it, it just, you know, it was such an image conscious time in music. I just didn't buy it. I thought the guy could sing. I thought the songs were pretty good. But I just didn't buy it. And then in time, I kind of got over that. And then Rob got to be so deadgum tough. I mean, it's like when you really get into it, Rob Halford, one of the best metal singers of all time. But here's the top 10. And I almost didn't use this one in top 10 because I know you really true Judas Priest fans hate this album. But number 10 for me is Turbo Lover. And this is going to be a quick list, too. Uh, number nine, and I actually have heard uh, Chris Jericho's band Fozzy play this live. It's Free Will Burning from Priest. I mean, that's the thing. You go back to, uh, you know, Hell Bent for Leather and, and uh, British Steel. Those, those are the classic albums. Because, you know, listen, Judas Priest made a bunch of records, but it wasn't until around 1980 things began to take off for them. Number eight, some heads are going to roll, and that's after uh, Rob had rejoined the band. Uh, number seven for me is Electric Eye. There's a lot of people, I guess it's the Hellion and Electric Eye kind of go together. I couldn't go with both, but you know what? If you want to do that, you go right ahead. Number six, it's a classic one, man. It's Delivering the Goods. I've heard this covered by I don't know how many bands, but uh, nothing's ever good as the original. Number four, and I think these I think these final four, they're my top final four. I think most of us will agree that at least three of these four are absolutely the best three Judas Priest songs. Number four for me may be number one for you, but it's Living After Midnight. And I'll tell you a quick story. There's a guy named Barry Birdwell that uh, is from central Mississippi, played guitar, had this blue and black Hamer guitar. It was incredible. He went to college, my brother. They played basketball together uh, there at Wesley College. But Barry had this uh, Christian rock band called Refuge. And, uh, and so he took Living After Midnight and changed it to Living for Jesus. And I know that may sound silly to you, but it really worked. And... Uh, so I really dug the song, and he's like, you know, that's, that's Judas Priest, right? And sure enough, it was. And uh, it made me like the song even more. Number three, and this is one of the heaviest songs in the catalog. I absolutely love this. I love this edge. I thought this was when Rob really got hard. It's Painkiller. And the vocals on that are ridiculous. Number two, going back a few years, it's Breaking the Law. And for those of you that are Beavis and Butthead fans, you know they're making a sequel, right? The new generation will get to see Beavis and Butthead. Breaking the Law was a huge part of that experience. But number one, and, uh, you know, it's interesting. I always, I'm always thinking about, I'm listening to music and I travel, and I travel by myself. And um, I was thinking, you know, there were some songs that kind of hit the playlist, and I was thinking, you know, I've listened to this when I wrote Flim Flam. And there were some songs when I was writing Flim Flam that, you know, very special to me that I, I I thought about this on the way home. I said, you know, I could probably put a top 10 list together, kind of like the writing soundtrack to Flim Flam, like songs that were inspirational to me or songs when I got angry or, 
or whatever I listen to that helped me. And this is one of them. And I think this is the Judas Priest song. Like when you, if, if we're going to do like rapid fire and I'm going to give you my favorite song from each band, I think most of us, this is the one would come up. But it's, you got another thing coming. You think I let it go, you're mad. You got another thing coming. It is aggressive. It is in your face. It is defiant. And I love it. And, uh, and so, you know, listen, I'll be honest with you guys. Again, I was late to the priest bandwagon because of some personal bias. You know what I mean? It's like a, because of a style choice. I just, ah, you know, I don't know if he's really committed, you know, because I like my rock stars to have long hair, you know. Um, wish I could have been one. But there's your list, Roy. Hope you enjoy it. I think most people will agree it's a good list. I think uh, there are some people that are Priest fans that really love the deeper cuts. And that's the thing about great bands. They have great fans that say, oh, the singles were the worst songs. I'm like that with some of my favorite bands, too. It's like, oh, man, this you guys aren't real fans if you don't know these songs. And th- there are a lot of people that are in the Judas Priest like that. They, they get in those deeper tracks, and they become your favorite songs. I mean, you know, if I, if I was going to put together like a list of my favorite you know, bands and put together my favorite songs. And you guys have heard some of the top 10 list here. Sometimes, like, you know, I, I go get songs that maybe were never played on the radio. I like what I like because I always feel like a single is just a promotion. You know what I mean? It's like, it's not necessarily the best song on the album. It's just trying to get you to hook to go buy the album. So there you go. That's a Judas Priest list for me. If you have ideas for the top 10 list, reach out, let me know. And Roy and I put it on a schedule. Thank Roy as always for all he does to bring the top 10 list of Spotify for you guys. who will have that list up here a little bit later. Next segment of the show brought to you by the fine folks at Campus Bookmart. Stan and Man, Miss Kathy Brown, lovely, talented Susie. Everybody up there will treat you like family because in their mind, you are family. Many of you bought your textbooks there when you were students, or maybe if you were commuter students, you parked in their free parking lot and you walked to campus because it was cool because they're cool like that. They want to help you. You need to outfit your family today in brand new Mississippi State merchandise. I know many of you went to the beach last week or you're going this week. Everybody deserves some new Mississippi State gear, Mom. Everybody needs those vacation clothes, right? Get them some Mississippi State stuff. Bulldogs are playing well. You'll be proud to wear it as always. Visit them on the World Wide Web at campusbookmart.net. And by being a loyal Boneyard listener, we'll give you a phrase that pays. That is BSR, which stands for Beautiful Steve Robertson. That'll get you free shipping on all orders over 50 bucks. Any order less than $50, absolutely incomplete. So I wanted to take this time uh, to give a plug to my friend, Matt Wyatt. And uh, Matt's your friend, too. Everybody knows Matt. Matt was a starting quarterback here at Mississippi State, and he has been a huge part of our Mississippi State family ever since. So Matt released on Sunday evening – this uh, highly anticipated documentary called Uneven, and you can find it at unevenbaseball.com. As a huge fan of college baseball, I was eager to see what Matt had uncovered, what his interviews would entail, and I am blown away by the people that Matt was able to get audience with. So he interviews, of course, Chris Lamonis and John Cohen, and those are a given, right? He gets Butch Thompson at Auburn. He gets Bo Bohannon at Alabama. He gets Greg Byrne at Alabama. He gets Scott Strickland at Florida. He gets Marlon Anderson, a guy that he played uh, high school ball with, played in major league for several years, and he got Greg Sankey. And he details out the very complicated issue of baseball scholarships and equivalency sports. 
And he gives a great overview of how it all works and how it's broken. Now, you guys have heard me talk about before. I have a college baseball fa- uh, player in my family. And I am still paying for those uh, parent loans to help offset the expense of him playing college baseball. It is worth it to me. I also have the ability to pay those loans. I had the ability to get those loans, too. He went to a private school, and um, it wasn't cheap. But at the end of the day, I thought this is an experience that will last him a lifetime. And as his dad and as a guy that's very invested in sports and in his future, I thought it was the right thing to do. I don't regret it for one second. But there are a lot of people out there that don't have those resources. There are a lot of people that don't have the ability to go get those loans. There are a lot of people, too, that don't have you know, the financial resources to allow their kids to play travel team baseball. And so as a result, as they begin to develop as young athletes, they're kind of ushered and pushed more towards full scholarship sports. And so as a result of that, more times than not, we are losing the diversity in our game because many of our best athletes are opting to say, you know what? Yeah, I'm a great baseball player, but you know what? I can go be a defensive back and uh, play special teams or whatever, be a second teamer and get my college education paid for for free. And so me and my family don't have to take out those loans. You've heard me say it on this show before, and I'll probably say it until the end. There is a disparity when it comes to scholarship distribution. And so my oldest son, Ani, you've heard me talk about him on the show, really young senior, Probably should have started him school late. Probably should have. His birthday is August 8th. But he's one of the youngest in his grade. Huge senior class, one of the biggest high schools in Baton Rouge. But he was one of the youngest. And, um, you know, he, he was too small, I think, to play high school football at a level competitive enough to get him on the recruiting radar somewhere. He was never a good ball handler. He enjoyed playing basketball. He was really more of a defensive guy and a glue guy and a, kind of a, sh- a set shooter. But baseball was his ticket. And he was also a guy that was very competitive in taekwondo, but there's no scholarships for that. And so, you know, that was the direction. This is a sport that he could play and he could make a contribution and perhaps get to the next level. And so you make all these ideas and it's like, okay, this is what we got to do to get to the next level. And so – because he excelled at baseball, immediately he is somewhat discriminated against. Because if he, if he was good enough in football, he'd get a full scholarship. If he was good enough in basketball, he'd get a full scholarship. But because he excelled in an equivalency sport, those full scholarships are not available to him. And so there are a lot of people out there, too, that would love for their – students to have a chance to go play college baseball but because they're talented enough to be on the major league baseball draft radar and it's a little different now because it's an abbreviated draft but there are a lot of scouts out there that would go draft those guys kind of understanding they don't have the financial wherewithal to pay to go to college and so you draft them in the you know 35th round or whatever and you make it part of the deal, hey, when you're done playing ball, we'll pay for you to go to college. And so it's like, hey, I'll chase this for a while, and then if it doesn't work out, I'll go to college and um, get my degree. 
and I hate to call it exploitation. It's good business sense if you're on the on the Major League Baseball side of this. But as a result, there are a lot of people that were talented enough to play college baseball that probably should have played college baseball that kind of went on to the minors before they were maybe mature enough to do so. And I, you want to know one of the reasons why they've got minor league baseball now? It's because of some draft practices like that. They got really bloated. And there are a lot of people that are, that are never going to make the major leagues that were riding minor league rosters out there and it needed to be gutted. I mean, it really did. And it's un- you begin to think, well, it's unfortunate for all those players you know, that had a dream or they would kind of bought into this. But uh, at some point, we all get cut. And everybody's losing money. And so at some point, you got to make difficult decisions, and they do. And so rather than those guys get drafted and kind of get lost in that you know, minor league uh, hustle in many respects, they could have come to college. And even if they didn't meet the major leagues, they still had the benefit of having a degree. And so I think one of the things that Matt does a good job kind of detailing is how complex this issue is. There is the disparity because of the 11.7, and he explains how we get to 11.7, what the genesis of that thinking was, and all of it goes back to Title IX. And I think Title IX is a wonderful thing, and and the numbers that Matt show about how many – female student athletes there are today compared to what they were in 1972 is staggering and that is a step in the right direction but we've got to find a way to make this work for everybody and I thought Mike Bianco made a great point you know Mike Bianco says they kind of you know pigeonhole baseball and softball together because the sports themselves are similar but the roster sizes are not the scholarship allocations are not you know, as he mentions, too, you know, you can have a pitcher in softball that can pitch on back-to-back days. It's not the case. You know, like, you know, in baseball, you got to carry sometimes 15 pitchers on a roster. Well, in softball, the roster is about 15 or 16 players. So it's a little different deal, and I think Matt does a great job kind of highlighting, you know, some of the issues with this. And uh, from what I understand, he is going to dig a lot deeper in this. This is not, you know, the end of the road here going to be some other parts of this thing because it is a complex issue and I think the number one thing we have to do is bring awareness to this yeah because at the end of the day I'm going to say some things that might make you a little bit uncomfortable but basically the way that this thing is structured right now is you're basically making college baseball an all-white sport I mean that's basically what you're doing and I think the numbers are when you watch the documentary and you should you can go to unevenbaseball.com and watch it's about 40 42 minutes it's well worth your time, and it's over before you know it. I mean, because it's so riveting. But the way they're structuring this is it's basically pushing diversity out of college baseball. And a lot of that starts at the grassroots level. But, you know, if I knew – if I wake up one day as you know, a seven-, eight-year-old kid and I think, you know what, I want to go play college baseball someday, and that's my dream, and then as I get closer to it, I realize I'm not going to have the money to go play college baseball. I got to go play something else, or I got to go be a regular student, or I got to go to junior college, or whatever. And so, why not make that dream more attainable? And it's actually pretty simple. There's a lot of things we could do. There are no easy answers, but there is a way you could get this thing done. And I think the number one thing, and I've said it on the show before, we got to have divisions in baseball, just like we do in football. You know, in football, you've got 85 scholarships in Division One. I, I think for FCS, where is it 65? Maybe I think it's right. But, you know, for those schools that want to fully fund baseball, then they can. And those that don't, don't have to. You can have divisions. And you don't have to drop down to D2 or D3. You can be Division I football and maybe be, you know, kind of like an FCS-level baseball program. There's no shame in any of that. 
And I think also, too, I mean, it also gives those teams like, you know, the Jackson States of the world, and, man, God bless those poor kids. They go undefeated the whole year and get upset in their conference tournament and not going to go to NCAA now. Crazy. But Jackson State is never going to win the College World Series. It's not going to happen. You know, there's, for every Coastal Carolina, there's, you know, 5,000 other teams out there that, you know, had the best team in their history and couldn't win a game in an NCAA regional. And so why not take those schools and give them something to play for? Because, you know, listen, Southern University, they can beat LSU once every 10 years in a non-conference game when they have a pitcher that just goes lights out, right? They're probably never going to beat them in a best two out of three series and certainly not going to beat them uh, when it matters most. But why not put them in a situation they can be competitive? I'm not going to belabor that point for very long, but I think Matt really does a good job explaining it and just kind of peels the onion back a little bit. And I think it adds some much-needed dialogue. Because, you know, here's the thing. If we're the only ones complaining about it, nothing's ever going to get done. Nobody, Listen, nobody helps the New York Yankees, and nobody's going to say, listen, we're going to go help the SEC. Because, listen, poor SEC guys, you're about to get four of eight top national seeds. Is that not enough? You know, Monmouth doesn't care that we want to pay our, our assistant coach, our third assistant coach, right? They don't care because they don't want to do that. I think we should have the ability to do that. And if they don't want to have it, that's cool. But I think we all need to make a decision of how we want to approach college baseball. If you don't want to fund baseball, it's fine. You can do. You don't have to fund any scholarships for all I care. But let's not hinder those that can and will. Because if you, if you go around and you travel and you see some of these stadiums, you understand what I'm talking about. The disparity between the haves and the have-nots in college baseball is ridiculous. But the have-nots have the same vote that the haves have as well. And that's kind of hard to say. But you understand my point. Is that the Power 5 schools are only a small percentage of all the Division One baseball schools. And most of those schools in D1 baseball don't want to fully fund baseball. So I think you have to provide another alternative. I think it's the easiest solution. All right, before we get out of here, I want to talk a little bit of recruiting. This might be a record length show. I, I never time these things, but um, we're already over an hour and a half. But uh, let's talk a little recruiting brought to you by our friend Brooks Bryan and Portico. If you are looking to make the move to Stargirl, I know many of you have thought about it. You said, you know, maybe, maybe someday. Well, maybe today's the day. So rather than, uh, you know, kind of push this thing around and start thinking, well, you know, Maybe one day we'll look into it. You know, you owe it to yourself to do, at least do some due diligence now. Because once you start having those dreams and all of a sudden you start putting some effort into it, you think, you know what, this is actually attainable. We could really do this. Portico is a great residential development right near campus, 1.1 miles away from campus. You turn off 82 on the 12, like you're going to Duty Noble, the very first right leads you to Garrett Road, right behind the Cryford Jeep dealership. It's a great community, going to have that great walking trail, great houses, got those back porches out there. It's a very, 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 very nice community. Going to have houses of every size. Two-bedroom, two-bath, four-bedroom, four-bath. Many that will fit your budget, whether it is an investment property for you or your primary residence. Maybe it's just your weekend getaway. Portico should absolutely be your first choice. Give those guys a chance to serve you. Uh, there's only, I think, two houses left in phase one. You need to have a sense of urgency. Maybe you were waiting for the kids to get out of school, but guess what? They're out. Stop putting this off, okay? 
I want you to come be my neighbor, and I know you want to you want to run into me at Walmart, and the, the chances of that happening are really strong if you live here. I think I live up there. Uh, but give Brooks a call, 601-416-8075. Again, that's 601-416-8075. Brooks is committed to Starville, committed to making Mississippi State and Starville a better place. He won't steer you in the wrong direction. Make Portico your next move. So as we talked for about – 10 days now, uh, Trent Singleton of Raymond High School commits to Mississippi State. This has been in the works for a long time. We've talked about it extensively on the show. Glad to get that done. Mississippi State now ranked 12th in the country and 5th in the SEC in recruiting. You'd say, well, Steve, it's because we got more commitments than everybody. Well, no, we don't. We're right there with everybody around us. So we're doing what we need to do. Trent wanted to announce today to commemorate the memory of his grandmother who basically raised him when he was young, says in his interview that you can read on jeanspage.com for free, this grandmother taught him how to throw a football. When he was bored or whatever, they'd get out in the yard and throw the football. they talk about life and that she was very instrumental in his upbringing. And so he wanted to honor her memory by announcing today. And Mississippi State had always been his dream school. There was really never any doubt about where he was going to go. From the moment he got the Mississippi State offer, it was really, you know, just a matter of time. And Trent Singleton's a great young man. These are the kind of guys you win with. Not just because they got great film, but these are people that are made of something. And these are people that stand for something. Trent Singleton's a good student, good leader, good citizen. Everybody you talk to will tell you great things about him. I have not yet found anybody to say anything negative about Trent Singleton. Now, that's not always the case. I'll be honest with you. There are a lot of times I'll talk to people kind of off the record and say, what kind of kid is he? Well, you know, Steve, I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't know if I'd want to get involved with this kid. That happens all the time. I have high school coaches that will tell me, and say, you know, he needs to grow up a little bit. And that's the case for all of us. I needed to grow up a lot when I was their age. But I haven't found anybody that's made those claims about Trent Singleton. And, again, these are the kind of guys that you take to media day someday. You know, guys that really know how to articulate themselves, that are great communicators and great ambassadors – in addition to that, because, listen, we're not running the Boy Scouts here. This is the Southeastern Conference. Trent Singleton is a superior athlete. And you can go look up his offer sheet and say, you know, Steve, he had State and Indiana and a bunch of G5s. I don't even care about any of that. Makes no difference to me. Turn the film on yourself. Now, he is a guy that has primarily been an offensive player in high school. You know, you don't want to play him every snap because he is your quarterback and you got to protect him a little bit. But he's not a quarterback. He's an athlete playing quarterback. But if you watch him on his own read, you see what I'm talking about. Great change of direction, great athleticism, great foot speed. Played some at corner. He's going to play safety at Mississippi State. He's already six foot, 185, 190-ish. This is a very physical football player. This is a guy, even on the offensive side of the football, shows no aversion to contact. And for those of you that don't know, he's been recruiting for Mississippi State for about two months. He's been telling other kids he was going to Mississippi State, wanted them to come with him. There are a few that he has some connections with that uh, he's working on. And so he's already kind of emerging as one of the leaders in the class. You know, he's a guy that's out there saying, hey, listen, let's all go to state together and do something special. And you need some guys like that that kind of build some esprit de corps. I'm telling you, I'm, at some point I'm going to get down there and do a video interview with Trent, and you guys are going to be blown away. You're going to see it and think, you know what, this is a kid that I can really root for. You're going to be excited about him, and you should be. I think this is a very good get. I think his rankings around 85. It's too low. He's probably an 87, 88 type guy. 
Uh, we just it's, it's hard to project that guy, too, when most of his film is offensive and he's going to play defense, and there's probably only about three or four plays on his highlight reel on the defensive side of the football. He had ten tackles last year and a pick. And most times he didn't even play defense except like in district games when they needed him out there, you know, when there was a play that needed to be made. And you just want to match athlete for athlete. He goes out there and plays. And so uh, excited about the get, kind of glad to get it done because it's been something we've been expecting for a long time. And, and listen, he picked a date and said, listen, this is when I want to do it, and this is why. And Mississippi State obviously honored that. But he has essentially been a private commitment to Mississippi State uh, for a while. So, so what's next for State? Well, not much because we're going to wait till we get into big dog camp. Of course, that's June 4th. And I don't think you're going to see a lot happen between now and then. And there's really no point in pushing. So if there's a priority target out there that says, hey, listen, I want to go ahead and be a Bulldog, you're going to go ahead and take that commitment. But more times than not, since you're so close to camp, you'll just kind of wait the process out. And I really think, you know, we're already right there with 12th in the country. We're not going to stay there, but I think we have a really good chance to stay in the top 20 because of the strength of what I think this D-line class is going to look like. Don Terry Russell's a four-star guy. I'm expecting him to commit to Mississippi State this summer. Could be as early as next month. Xavier uh, Harris is a guy that is leaning to Mississippi State. That process is going to have some ups and downs, but he's consistently mentioned State. It's one of his leaders. Uh, you begin to factor in Malachi Moore is a guy that uh, got of Georgia that's originally from Virginia. We're really battling Virginia Tech there. Then there's R.J. Moss, a guy that is Mississippi State lean, also a four-star guy. Going to kind of work through some things, but I really believe once Mississippi State kind of picks up the pace and says, listen, we want you to be a Bulldog, I think that'll happen. I think it'll probably happen uh, this summer. I think he's a guy, too, that kind of needs to come to camp and you know measure in well and work out well. And, and again, you sign those four guys or three of those four, especially if you get all three of those in-state guys, that's three four-star guys that are going to really elevate this class and I think really kind of give it an anchor to stay in the top 20. Not to mention these guys are very, very talented football players. They're going to be part of that next generation of great Mississippi State defensive linemen. Well, there you go. There's your recruiting update. If you hadn't done so, go to alphadogsthebook.com and you can get personalized copies of Flim Flam, Stark Villains, and Alpha Dogs for your dad for Father's Day. Absolutely the best gift you could give him. And if you hadn't done so, go to you can go to Amazon, go to Books a Million, you can go to barnesandnoble.com, and you can pre-order Blooms of Oleander. It's my newest book. It'll be released June 7th. It is a book of poetry and inspiration and uh, some great short story stuff. I'm very proud of the work. It's different than anything else I've ever done, but it's probably more like me than you'll ever imagine. You think you know me, but you don't. Uh, you read that book, you'll have a little more insight and kind of what makes me tick and kind of what's made me the way that I am. But uh, I'm really proud of it, and many of you have already bought the books. I get those reports, and uh, very, very excited about that. Lemuria Books is going to carry it. Of course, Bookmart and Cafe here in town and many other bookstores around the great state of Mississippi. But you can go ahead and get your purchase made today by going to Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, or Books of Megan. Or you can always just call your local bookstore and say, hey, order me this book. They can find it through Ingram. Again, that's Steve Robertson, Blooms of Oleander. But until next time, let's all live our lives in a way we make more friends than enemies and people can see a difference in the way we live. Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O dot C-O. 
Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.